humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, your favorite idealist. A human trying to change the world here with another great show. We have an encore interview of a wonderful person, sorry, that I interviewed um, back in October, Mary Frances Winters, who's going to talk about black fatigue. And that is a very timely topic uh, with what's going on in America right now. Well, really what's going on in Minneapolis. So, and uh, sorry that it's not a fresh interview, but this... uh, this uh, is a tape bailing wire and uh, crepe paper operation, and it's being challenged uh, around me trying to get booked uh, interviews booked. So, but hopefully, we'll be doing better in later in April and in May. And in my C block, uh, I have to once again talk about what's happening to transgender youth in America. It is appalling, and that's why I have to talk about it again. But let me start with an idealist who you may be generally familiar with, but who's probably not on your radar as an idealist. I am referring to Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. Actually, both of them founded Amazon. The two divorced in 2019 with a property distribution where Mackenzie Scott received $35.6 billion, that's with a B, worth of Amazon stock, making her the third wealthiest woman in the world. And by December of last year, December of 20, her net worth was estimated at $62 billion, with a B, making her the world's richest woman. Now, before I get to what Mackenzie Scott has done with that money, let me share a little bit about her earlier life. It turns out that she is far more accomplished than simply having uh, the distinction of being the former Mrs. Bezos. Mackenzie Scott was born on April 7, 1970. She is just past a birthday, and, and she was born in San Francisco. Her father was a financial planner, her mother a homemaker. At an early age, Mackenzie Scott showed an affinity for writing. In fact, by the time she was just six years old, she had written a 142-page book titled The Bookworm, which unfortunately was later destroyed in a flood. After attending a private boarding school in Connecticut, Mackenzie enrolled at Princeton University to study English. While there, she studied under Toni Morrison, the Pulitzer Prize and Nobel uh, winning laureate, author of Beloved and other great works. I mean, my God, if you have Toni Morrison as your writing instructor, take it. Tell me, um, it would be quite wonderful. Toni Morrison would later describe Mackenzie as one of the best students she ever had. And as an aspiring writer, that's got to be about the best compliment you could possibly get. After graduating from Princeton, Mackenzie moved to New York City. She was intent, intent on becoming a published author, but needed a day job to pay the bills. She applied at a hedge fund named D.E. Shaw. Um, She wanted to be a research assistant there, again, just simply to pay the bills while she could write in the evenings and on the weekends. It just so happened that the person who interviewed her at D.E. Shaw um, was a vice president named Jeff Bezos. Mackenzie got the job, but she also started a romance with her boss, Jeff. Um, And in 1992, of course, the work world was quite different then than it is today. 
As we all know, Jeff Bezos was a big idea person. In 1993, after just three months of dating McKenzie, uh, he and McKenzie married. They then moved to Seattle where Bezos started Amazon. Again, I keep saying that Bezos started it, but McKenzie also helped him start it. She was intimately involved with the startup by working on the company's name, um, its business plan, and negotiating its first freight contract, which, as we know, is so critically important to the way Amazon works. Once the company started to take off, McKenzie had a less prominent role and concentrated on raising a family. They have four children, and she also concentrated on writing. The writing was quite productive. Her first book, a novel titled The Testing of Luther Albright, um, earned an American Book Award in 2006. Not bad for a breakout book for a brand new author. I am quite jealous. Uh, Mackenzie has since gone on to release a second novel, Traps, titled Traps, in 2013. I tell you all of this to set the foundation for Mackenzie's idealism. As some of you know, Mackenzie hasn't been content to sit by and just simply count her money. She quickly became a signatory to something called the Giving Pledge, where she committed to giving away at least half of her wealth to charity. And she started to carry through on that pledge. Now, remember, she and Bezos broke up and, you know, they got divorced in 2019. Oh, by the way, she has since remarried. She remarried a high school chemistry teacher. You got to love it. She sounds like such a down-to-earth human. She really does. But uh, Mackenzie, um, you know, divorced in 2019, signs this pledge that she's going to give away half of her wealth. And she started down the road doing that. Last year, in 2020, she, she gave away nearly $6 billion to charity. It is one of the largest bursts of charitable giving in the history of the country, maybe the world. Her focus has been on creating change by giving money to more than 100 nonprofits that are working on racial equity, LGBTQ rights, democracy, and climate change. And of the money given away so far, more than $800 million has gone to historic uh, black colleges and universities, universities, tribal colleges, and, um, and other uh, traditionally underfunded educational f- uh, facilities. In fact, um, Mackenzie Scott, other than I, I, you know, I, I generally knew who she was, she got on my radar as an idealist because I saw a Twitter story. Remember, I'm a Twitter junkie. I saw a Twitter story about Mackenzie giving $8 million to Tuttle Mountain Community College in North Dakota. Tuttle Mountain <clears throat> Community College happens to be um, the, the very first tribal college ever created in the U.S. And you might say, wow, okay, but here's the other thing. It's only been in existence 50 years. Think about that. So before... Uh, 50 years ago would be the 1970s, mid-70s. Before that, there were no such things as tribal colleges to educate Native people. Think about that. What a tremendous blind spot of our country. At any rate, sounds like Mackenzie's working 
to close that blind spot. Four months ago, um, McKenzie uh, announced uh, that that another $4.15 billion had been given to 384 organizations, some of which were working on COVID relief. But even before McKenzie's divorce, she was an idealist. In 2014, she founded an anti-bullying organization, Bystander Revolution, which works to combat bullying by emphasizing principles and strategies founded on compassion, empathy, and kindness. You know, um, that Ellie Krug kind of stuff. And if you go to by, the Bystander Revolution website, all you have to do is Google Bystander Revolution. I highly recommend that you do that. You'll see dozens and dozens of testimonial videos um, by survivors of bullying and former bullies, along with experts. Some of those testimonies, testimonials are by famous people like Michael J. Fox and Selma Hayek. I highly recommend it. Please go Google Bystander Revolution, particularly if you have a human in your life who's either experiencing bullying or is a bully. The videos are, I mean, there are many, many videos, but they're very, very effective. I am certain that we will hear more about Mackenzie Scott um, as we go forward. And when you do, please know that she is truly an idealist at work. Okay, well, uh, that's what I have for my opening opening act. Um, uh, when uh, we come back from the break, I'm going to give you um, an encore interview of Mary Frances Winters, who wrote a book about black fatigue. It is an interview that I did in October of 20. It is so timely right now. And um, please go ahead and enjoy that interview. And when that interview is over, Come on back because I've got a C block uh, that I want to um, talk to you about. Okay, thanks. We'll be back in a minute. We're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, everyone. Well, this is the time for the big interview. And I have on the line with me uh, Mary Frances Winters, who is uh, both a a writer as well as uh, an inclusion advocate, uh, somebody who goes around doing the kind of work that I do, speaking and training about how humans can get past racism and other things. Mary Frances, are you there? I am here. Thank you so much for having me. uh, Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am just thrilled to have you here. Um, I uh, found out about your book, and as soon as I found that out, I'm like, okay, we need to have her on the show. So your book, Black Fatigue, uh, with a a subtitle of How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, came out, what, about a couple of maybe three weeks ago, yes? Yes. September 15th. Okay. All right. Well, we're just about a month out. And so um, this is a book. uh, Can you explain to us what the book is about? I mean, the title, of course, helps. And then I absolutely want to talk about your work. Yeah, thank you so much. The book is about the intergenerational fatigue, this malaise that that, um, Black people have as a result of over 400 years of 
fighting for um, equity um, in this country, um, a place that we haven't gotten yet. And so it's intergenerational. Um, there are studies that show that the stress that we carry, the extra stress gets into our cellular system and actually does get passed down uh, from generation to generation. Okay, well, that is, that's a lot, of course. Um, we just, uh, you know, um, I know that you just came on the show now, but the first half of the show was talking about Indigenous People Day. Yes. Um, and um, we had a caller call in, Jan, to talk about, you know, the Indian schools and how children were taken away from their families. Um, and, you know, the horrors that uh, white uh, people, white, I refer to white people as white color people because most white people don't believe white's a color. Um, but, the, <laughs> you know, the horror that white color people, you know, inflicted on, you know, Native Americans, indigenous people. And, and how that, you know, for indigenous people, how that weighs on them. I mean, you know, the messaging from society is that you are lesser and so let's carry that over to the to the black community. You know, you've got. I mean, you, you the black community shares, of course, with indigenous people the 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 kind of oppression that goes back hundreds of years. But for the black community, um, you know, the the idea that you were considered property for so long, um, just generations. Talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so in writing the book, um, it was difficult for me to just confine it to black people. Um, I chose a title black fatigue because, you know, I could have said black, indigenous, people of color fatigue. Um, and in the book, I do acknowledge that um, there are other subordinated groups that absolutely um, and uh, indigenous people in this country, you know, we uh, you just had the last segment on that. And we know the ramifications and the manifestations um, uh, of that. So I do want to get give honor to uh, the first people uh, who were uh, in this country and experienced uh, colonization. Uh, it, it is um, it, it is really mind boggling to think that we think we've made progress and then we see things like over the last few weeks the executive orders that have come out that say we cannot even do this kind of training which has been labeled as being divisive and anti-american quite the contrary the work that we do is all about america mm -hmm. living up living up to what it is what it espouses that all people are created equal no doubt about that. And, and I want to talk about the executive order. But before we do that, can you talk more about, you know, how this um, messaging from society over, you know, hundreds of years has seeped into, uh, for black people, the psyche? And, and how, is that, how does that show up on a day-to-day -day basis for, for, black, for black folks? Yeah, so sometimes it shows up as internalized oppression, like all of the negative stereotypes become internalized and you don't even recognize that you have accepted this, these ideas um, that you're less than, this deficit uh, mindset, this idea that um, because you're black, there's only so much you can do, there's, you know, because the powers that be are so much uh, against you. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think there is also a groundswell of, of people for generations who have held hope, you know, who have been resilient, who have been strong. But therein lies the black fatigue, the extra work that you have to do to stay positive, to stay strong, because at every turn, practically, you know, there's something that's trying to that's trying to pull you back. But we see this in small children. We see this in, mm -hmm. in elementary school yep. children where the, the internalized oppression, uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy, if, if you will, you don't. 
expect much of me, so I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to, to to give much. The black doll experiment uh, that was done in the 40s and then repeated a few years ago that showed that black children, black preschool children, will pick the white doll as the better doll, will pick the white doll as the smarter doll, the white doll as the prettier mm-hmm. doll, and so it starts early. Uh, this sense of not being as good as. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I have a, uh, I've been a mentor uh, through Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and then on our own to a biracial girl. We started when she was seven. She's now 15, going on 25. Um, but she identifies as black. And I vividly remember two things about my experience with her. First is she picked up all on her own. Um, and asked me a question one day, Ellie, why is it when there are, you know, um, people accused of crimes on TV that they only show the black people and they don't show the white people Mm. as the criminals? And then I remember her telling, and she has said that this to me several times, is that I wish I was right. I was white, Ellie. Everything Mm. would be easier for me. Everything would be better because white people have it better. And so, you know, and, and, and it turned, you know, I, my counter messaging to her has always been, you are darn smart. You are such a smart person. You are going to do great in the world. You've just got to hang in there and keep plugging away and I'll do my best to be, you know, your ally. But how do we get people past that messaging? I think we have to do just what you're doing. We have to keep um, ta- we have to turn that deficit message around. We have to keep the positive messages going and not just, um, you know, we do it at the inter- individual level. We do it at the interpersonal level, but we have to do it at the at the systemic level as well and not accept the disproportionality, not accept, for example, 19 percent of the preschool children in this country are black and 46 percent of the preschool children who are suspended or expelled from preschool Mm -hmm. are black. Now, how are you going to suspend a preschool kid? They're less than five years old. (laughs) I mean, isn't there another way? And don't we, and, and, and to be able to say that is not acceptable. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have this outcome next year. We're not going to have this outcome the next time because we're going to look at the root. That's what systemic racism does. We're going to look at the roots. We're going to look at why this is happening and we're going to turn it around. No well, questions asked. We're going to do that. So, yeah. So why do white colored teachers have far less patience for uh, children with skin colors other than white? I mean, that's, I mean, we, it, it is, and, and so it goes all the way back to how are we teaching our teachers, you know, and how are we selecting our teachers and, and, and all the messaging they get about skin color as well. So um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, in your book, you write that black children grow up too fast. And what, what do you mean by that? And, and how does that manifest? It's something um, that the uh, experts call adultification. Um, and so they've done a number of different studies and different academic institutions have done these studies. So they're not just coming out of one place where they find that uh, black boys are seen as older than their age. And so if they're nine years old, um, they're really seen as being 13 or 14 um, years old. And that's why the criminal justice system uh, treats them um, you know, more severely than they would um, than they would a white kid. Um, black girls are seen in this one study that they did are not seen as needing as much nurturing and as much hmm. as much care as white l- little girls that they're seen as as older um, than they are. 
And, you know, int- intro group, we do some of it our- ourselves. You know, we talk about little man, right? We call our, our little boys little man, right? Instead of uh, letting them be a little boy, right? Um, right, right. You know, man up, man up, right? Uh, you better not cry. You know, these are all terms that, you know, through my years, I heard other people, you know, say. Uh, you've got to be strong. And part of that is knowing that the world that they're going to experience is not going to be one that um, coddles or, or nurtures. And so there so many parents start from the very beginning to say, this is going to be your reality, this harsher world. And that's what I'm going to show you so that you can survive in that harsher world. But then that, of course, does that create harsher people? I mean, you know. Uh, well, it, it, it can create broken. I think it creates broken people. Yep, I think it yep. creates. I, yeah, I think that's what it creates. I think it creates people who have a difficult time, you know, be, be, being whole, holding, you know, holding those emotions in. And, um, you know, we talk sometimes about, um, you know, post-traumatic stress um, syndrome, but we also talk about um racial trauma and how racial trauma can play out like post-traumatic stress syndrome. So yes, you get the outcomes that look like um, what the, like the outcomes that we get, you know, more, more domestic violence, um, more activity that uh, puts people in the, in the, puts black people in the criminal justice system and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's so complex. That's what I try to lay out in the book, the complexity of all of this. It's not so simple as to say, you know, uh, Black person committed the crime. Okay, do the time. Well, the time is going to be more, you know, typically. Uh, and right. we see this play out, right? We see the, how we see the police brutality that's disproportionately um, targeted to uh, to black people. So, Mary Francis, I know that I've got listen. I mean, you're talking to one of the most liberal people you're going to find, and we you're speaking on a very progressive radio station. So, right now, I know there are white color people listening. And they're asking, what can I do? How can I help with this? How can I help with black fatigue? How can I help change the way America is right now? And um, I'm going to give you about a minute and a half to do that. And we're going to have to take a break. But we can come back and you do more after that, okay? So what would you say to the the white people listening right now? Um, Get educated. Do your own education around the history, around the policies, practices, laws that are um, that, that are just that are laws that disproportionately impact in a negative way um, black people. Speak up and speak out. I talk with so many white people, good white people who want to to uh, be an anti-racist, if you will, but they will admit that they don't say anything. They don't challenge the system. Um, so that's what's really important. So ask questions. Have have some fearlessness in you um, and self-educate. And, you know, so when I, you and I are in the same business and when I speak with white audiences, one of the things I remind them is this is not the kind of thing you, you go and you ask a black person to, to stand up in the room and, and explain what does it mean to be black. This is where mm-hmm. you, you actually, you know, Wikipedia is a great thing. It can tell you everything you need to know about Juneteenth and the Tulsa race riots and and about enslaved humans. And so white people just need to go and do that work, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, listen, uh, uh, your book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, where can people find it if they want to buy it, which I hope they're going to do? Oh, wherever they buy their um, wherever they buy their books, you know, Amazon or and, and also I would um, I want them to also um, patronize the um, 
the independent bookstores. So for sure, that's really important. The small bookstores and the small black owned bookstores. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We want to support uh, independent bookstores for sure. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your book. And then I want to talk about that executive order uh, that uh, the Trump administration has put out. Okay. All right. All right, everyone. We've been speaking with Mary Frances Winters, the uh, author of Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. Get it on Amazon, Kindle, or Nook, or particularly at your independent bookstores. When we come back, we'll speak a little bit more with Mary Frances. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, and I've been interviewing and speaking with Mary Frances Winters, the author of Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. And Mary Frances, when we took our break, we were talking about how white people, white color people, um, can do more. And one of the things we talked about is about self-educating. You know, I think that for many white people, this is also overwhelming. Although, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've been doing a lot of work uh, since George Floyd's murder. And I have to tell you, I have been finding such a large demand from people for anti-racist training. Um, a large demand, uh, 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 particularly from elected officials that I've been speaking with in training, about how can they first identify what is structural racism, how can you identify it, and how can you get past it? What are you finding in your work, particularly since George Floyd's murder? Absolutely. Just an explosion in the work. I've been doing this work now for 36 years. The Winters Group has been in business doing this work for 36 years. And I must tell you that I am frustrated that so many people have come forward, so many leaders and organizations saying, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know that racism was still such an issue in this country. We didn't know the history. Come on, folks, where you been? I love it. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, all it took was to just uh, open your eyes. But, you know, I mean, I, people don't like to be uncomfortable. This stuff is very you know, um, disquieting for people, you know, particularly people who hold the levers of power, which are usually older white color men. But um, and so let's talk about what the Trump administration is trying to do. So you alluded to the order. Can you go on and explain it? Talk about the uh, order. Yeah. So there are actually two orders. And the first order that came out restricted, prohibited, government agencies from continuing their anti-racism work. The second order that came out a couple of weeks after that first order restricted, prohibited any government contractors from conducting what they call anti-American divisive training. That would be the discussion you and I are having right now, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Well, and, and, so, and the problem with the second order is that, as I'm seeing on my end, anybody who gets government funds is interpreting that to mean that they're a government contract, federal government Correct. contractor. So, Correct. So we're, so, um, we're seeing, I'm seeing on my end, you know, like schools, like, you know, 
certainly governmental agencies are just like we we're we're we like you, Ellie, but we don't we we don't think we can have you. What are you finding? So I don't do a lot of government work. Um, I never have in the 36 years I've been in business. And the reason I don't do a lot of government work is because of just these kinds of things. Uh, but also because um, it's just there's just a lot of red tape to do, to right. do business with the right. government. So most of yeah. my clients are corporate. And the corporate world really can't back away from this now because they came out in June uh, with all of these statements of solidarity. They came out and said, we're going to do anti-racism training. They came out and said, you know, we're going to prioritize um, hiring um more black people into leadership roles. And so the government is now coming out and targeting those companies as well who have been um, vocal since June with their statements of solidarity and what they're going, you know, what they're going to do. And many of these companies, you know, practically every large corporation somehow um, does business with the government, right? Sells, right. sells something, has some connection um, to the government. But I'm finding that for the most part, um, you know, most of the organizations that I'm working with are are, are going to uh, move forward. And I think that's what we have to do to come to combat this. But when I read the executive, not but and when I read the executive order, I say there is not much in the executive order that we really can't do. The executive order says that we will not propagate anything that says that one race is inherently better than the other. We teach just the opposite. So we don't do that. It says that we will um, not stereotype certain groups. Um, we do just the opposite. Stereotyping, we say in our work, is not a good thing because it's a narrow description, a narrow characterization mm -hmm. of any particular group. Um, our work pr promotes inclusion, which the executive order says is okay. We've always promoted inclusion. It really is about fairness and justice, which is a part which which is inherent in our constitution. And when a company finds that they are not being fair and just, they should take care of that. And so companies are finding that they have not been fair and just as it relates to black people. Let me give you an example of Wells Fargo. In August, Wells Fargo was fined uh, or, or agreed. Uh, there was a settlement of $7.8 million. The same government agency, the OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance, fined um, Wells Fargo and said you must pay $7.8 million because they found that, in fact, they did discriminate against black people in employment. Fast forward to today, which that was just a month ago, so we don't have to fast forward very far. They're now saying, because the CEO of Wells Fargo said that they were going to put a priority on hiring um, more blacks in leadership because they were you know, right. uh, deficient there. And now the OFCCP is saying that's discriminatory. Right. So on the one hand, they find them for being discriminatory. And on the other hand, they're saying they can't fix the discrimination. Well, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but the sense I have from my client field is that everybody's in kind of a standby mode. Um, going to wait to see what happens on November 3rd, because you and I both know that if, um, if uh, Biden gets in, uh, these orders that you just spoke about are going to be rescinded probably within the first day. Um, that would be my guess. It, it would be, but even if, um, well, when, I should say when, <laughs> when we get a new administration, there's a lot that they can do between November and January. Oh, gosh, don't even, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be my fear. So so my, my approach to it is not to sit back, but my approach is to uh, hit the um, executive orders head on by saying our work complies yeah. with the executive order. No, and I, you know, I think that that's a really great approach. Um, I'm on the executive committee here of a thing called the Twin Cities Diversity and Inclusion Roundtable, which mm -hmm. is a collection of about 200 
uh, D, E, and I, diversity and in, in, in equity, equity and inclusion professionals. Um, and I will tell you, there are people that are hurting here. You know, and, and I appreciate the fine um, reading of the executive orders, but it's more the idea about the government coming in and wanting in one way or another to chill, to chill the work that you and I do, to chill the work around trying to deconstruct structural racism. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's mind blowing that you would have the government, you know, I mean, what's next? I mean, they're going to start putting people in jail, you know, that type of thing. And, and, and are they going to, you know, I mean, I just, it, we could, we can go down that long road and I, I don't want to go down that road because I want today to be a good day. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, I think we, I think we have to um, stand strong and we have to speak up and we have to not sit back and wait and sit back to wait to see what's going to happen. I think we need to defy the executive order. And there are many, or oh. um, I know that I know that the corporate world is developing their own um, statements um, against those executive orders. And I know that I can't name my clients because I, you know, I have non-disclosure agreements with them, but I have many very, very large corporate clients who are going full steam ahead and are not paying any attention to those executive orders because um, they're the values of their company that they have espoused and that they have stated uh, are that they are for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that they will create a fair and just, um, a fair and just inclusive environment. And in those places where they are not, they're rectifying that. And I think that they're willing right. to to take the um, whatever happens, the consequences for doing that. All right. Well, Mary Francis, I could talk to you all day, but we've got to go. I want to thank you very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. I've been speaking to Mary Francis Winters, author of Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. Thanks so very much for being on the show, Mary Francis. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck in your work as well. Okay. You know, keep up the good fight. Thanks. We'll be back in a minute. I'm back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. I hope that you enjoyed that encore interview of Mary Frances Winters. Um, pick up the book um, because, yeah, because where we are right now. All right, we're in my C block, and I'm going to talk about transgender people again. And I, you know, I'm transgender. You know that, many of you, okay? It is not my desire to shove things down your throats. On the other hand, I have this rare platform. I do. And um, I have to use it. So thank you for understanding that. I want you to imagine some stuff here. So parents, the parents I have that are hearing me right now, I want you to assume you've got a 10-year-old kid. Or if you've got a kid that's 30, let's go back. Assume they were 10 years old. Let's assume it's a son. And I want you to assume that this son has a health condition that requires medical treatment. Now, the, the, health, the health condition can be fatal in some instances. And in other instances, the health condition, while not being fatal, can result in tremendous emotional distress that requires the use of therapy, maybe the use of 
of the kinds of drugs that you need, you know, to help with depression. I want you to imagine you have a 10-year-old son that has those problems. And I want you to assume that if your son, okay, doesn't get the treatment, your son may die. There's a possibility of it. Okay? And um, I'm assuming that if you had a son with that kind of condition, you, of course, loving your child, would want to immediately get help for your child. Right? You'd, you'd, you'd want to make sure. Let's get that doctor set up, that doctor visit, so we can start dealing, dealing with this health condition that you have. You know, and, um, and then you'd probably want help from that doctor to maybe give you some recommendations about therapists who can help because, you know, the doctor regularly treats people like this and the doctor knows of a good therapist who can treat um, young people with this condition. These are all the basic duties of a parent to protect their child, right? I mean, my God, this is so basic. Well, I want you to imagine the helplessness and anger that you would feel. Now, you're motivated. You're going to try and go get help for your kid. I mean, my goodness, my kid needs this help, medical help, maybe therapeutic help. I want you to imagine the reaction you would have if the government stepped in and said, you can't get that treatment for your kid. Not only can't you get the treatment, it, the government has threatened the doctors that would treat your kid that they could go to prison if they treated your kid. They could even go to prison if they referred your kid to a therapist. I want you to imagine the government has stepped in to do that. Can you feel the anger that you would have about that and the, the helplessness? This is your child. Oh, my God. And your child is suffering, maybe at risk of dying, certainly at risk of great emotional trauma over this health condition that your child has. And now the government has said that you can't get your kid any help. That would incense you, wouldn't it? And it would incense those who know your family and their needs, right? Well, what I have just laid out for you is not really in the hypothetical. What I have laid out for you is what, come, uh, I think, July, will soon be the, the law of the land in Arkansas relative to transgender children and youth in that state. The law was passed by the Arkansas legislature um, within the last two weeks, and it bars medical care for transgender youth up to age 19. It provides for criminal, criminal felony penalties for doctors, medical professionals who treat those transgender kids, and as I said, also criminal penalties even if the doctor they don't treat and they refer the, your child, a transgender child, to a therapist. All of this is important because if, if you... If, if, if there is a 10-year-old assigned male at birth but now says that she is a girl, it is 
exceedingly critical for her to get medical treatment, including access to hormone blockers. That is, those are, those are things that prevent puberty from setting in. It, it is not permanent. You can stop the hormone blockers if there is a need to do that, and, hor- and then puberty will set in. They are not permanent. But, but young 10-year-old transgender kid, you know, who, is, who says, um, I'm really not a boy, I'm a girl, okay? And, and by the way, there are hundreds of thousands of those transgender kids in America right now who say, Mommy, I'm not a boy, I'm really a girl. Because if they don't get those hormone blockers, okay, and they know in their heads they're female, they're going to start to hit male puberty, which means beard setting in deeper voice setting in, Adam's apple growing. It can be emotionally devastating for a child to have all of that happen when you believe and you know in your head you are a girl, not a boy, but, you're, but now you're growing into a boy. And the state of Arkansas has said too bad. Not only to those transgender youth and kids, but to their parents. Too bad. We know better than you. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the government coming into your life right now, you listeners, and telling you we know better than you about what you need for yourself or for your family? The law goes so far as to stop, to end hormone treatment, puberty blockers, for transgender kids presently receiving them. So imagine somebody took their 10-year-old. They've been getting hormone blockers for three years. Everything is going great. They're seeing their child who now gets to identify as a girl. They're seeing them blossom. They're happy because before they were depressed. They're now happy. They're engaged. They're having, they're, they're, they, this is now my real kid here. And now your state, Arkansas, has said no more hormone blockers. Your 14-year-old transgender girl is going to start developing a beard and deep voice. Arkansas Governor uh, Asa, Asa Hutchinson vetoed that bill last week, this week, claimed that it was governmental overreach. However, a day later, the Arkansas legislature overrode that veto, and Hutchinson, if you looked how he announced his veto... He kind of did a wink and nod knowing that he would get overridden. Similar laws like this uh, to Arkansas are, are being considered in Alabama and Mississippi, and no, date, no doubt other states will pass them. And here's the thing that I have a fear of as a transgender human, as a transgender leader. I have a fear that this will ripple across America, these kinds of laws, and that Americans will get tired of fighting them. Because... Things get normalized, and that's what happens. If you know a transgender or a lesbian, gay, or bisexual kid here in Minnesota, trust me, they know about this law. It is shaking them, even though they might not admit it. Let them know that you care. Reach out to them today. Tell them that you love them and that you believe they matter. Because transgender humans, especially our youth, do matter.
please do that for me, will you? Thanks for um, being educated on this yet again. Big thanks to my producer, Patrick, to my listeners. Hey, I'll have a guest next week and hopefully going forward. But in the meantime, reach out to me at Ellie J. Krug. Got to throw the J in there. Tell me what you think of the show. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, go and do good in the world. Thank you.